It's a beautiful reminder, both the song and uh, the video of the, of the baptisms from a couple of weeks ago, of just the joy of being a family and watching people celebrate solidarity with the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, we've kind of changed up our rhythm with regard to baptism. We did uh, one at the beach last summer. We did these outdoor, kind of before the chili cook-off a couple weeks ago. We've got a baptism coming up in February that will be part of our worship services. So really just trying to make sure we take the time to celebrate what that is, but it's a, it was a great reminder. And if you weren't able to be there, make sure to make plans uh, to be part of the next one that's coming up. Well, we're beginning our Christmas series this morning called Santa's Workshop, and I'm excited over the next couple of weeks to just spend some time. It's, it's a bummer that only like two of you thought I was joking, right? It's like, I think I heard one person go, that can't be true. Everybody else was like, all right, let's learn about Santa. All right, this is a, this is a weird church, but whatever. Uh, now, the, the stage is set for, uh, for the production that's happening tonight. We've got our special needs a Christmas production called Simply Christmas. That's happening tonight at 6 o'clock. What, what? And uh, so we've got that all set for here. But this morning, we are still in our study of John. We will uh, we'll finish uh, in John this morning, and then we'll begin our Christmas series next week. Uh, and we'll be in that for a couple of weeks, and then we'll come back to John in January. So we pick up this morning in John chapter 2, where we left off last week. And at the end of this time we were studying last week, we saw Jesus cleanse the temple. And remember, the Jewish leaders came to him and they said, you know, what sign can you show us? What miraculous sign can you show us as proof that you have the authority to do these things? And Jesus came right back and said, well, tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And knowing that they certainly would not tear down their temple, but also recognizing, as we talked about last week, that he wasn't talking about the physical structure. He was talking about the temple of his body that would rise from the dead. As we continue on, John, the writer here now, is giving us a a sort of a statement about the climate in Jerusalem at the time and what was happening. And it's interesting. Uh, Look at verse 23. John says, now when he, that's Jesus, now when he was in Jerusalem, was at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Well, that's an interesting statement because John is telling us something about that season. But what's insightful or what's interesting about it is that John actually hasn't told us about any miracles Jesus has done in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. Um, The miracle that we do see in John chapter 2 happened in Cana. So what John is saying to us or what he's letting us know is that Jesus was doing miraculous signs during that time while he was in Jerusalem for the Passover and that there were many people who were believing in him because of those miraculous signs. Now that's an interesting note as well because Jesus will make it very clear over the course of his ministry that just believing in him because you saw something spectacular, just believing in him because you got loaves and fishes and you had your stomach filled is not really saving faith. That's not the kind of belief that God is looking for. In fact, most of the time when people come to him looking for signs, there are many times where he rebukes them for that. So John is saying here, Jesus was doing miraculous signs, and there were people who were professing or committing themselves to him. But look at what it says in in response to that, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So when you read that the first time, you think, well, this is kind of weird, like Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. What's that mean? The word there that's translated entrust is the very same word in verse 23 that's translated believe. It means to, uh, to commit or to believe or to put faith in. What, what John is saying is that there were all kinds of people who were believing in Jesus because of his miracles, but he didn't believe in them because he understood their faith was just in the miraculous and not in who he truly was. In essence, what the text is saying is Jesus did not trust in their trust. He did not believe in their belief. And his lack of confidence in their professed faith 
is rooted in his knowledge of all men. So to read the whole thing in sequence, it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, verse 25, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. That's a very interesting statement about Jesus. And the writer here will go on in subsequent passages to show us several examples of the reality that Jesus understood people's character, that he saw what was inside them. And this verse in, in verse 25 has always been a little bit troubling to me. I, you, you either find it really exciting or you can find it really scary because in essence, what it's saying is that Jesus never needed someone to give him their business card, right? There was never a time where Jesus needed somebody to come up and go, hey, I'm Darren, and I've been studying the Bible for a long time, and I'm very religious, and there's a lot of people who know that about me. In fact, I have people tell, tell me that I'm a good guy. He didn't need any of that posturing. And that might be a little disconcerting to you this morning because our culture is kind of built on the foundation of posturing. Social media, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, all of those things are all about putting up a beautiful facade. They're all about putting up a, bo- a good face. You post a picture of the best meal you had or the best vacation you took or all how beautiful your Christmas decorations look or whatever. But our culture in some ways is rooted in this idea of us being able to put forth the image that we want, right? That we can tell other people what they should know about us and we can tell other people what they should believe about us, that we're able to kind of, kind of maintain a facade that we're able to put on a mask and other people have to buy into it simply because they don't have any way to check what we've said or what we've posted. And here in John 3, or excuse me, 2.25, it says, Jesus didn't need any of that. He didn't need to see your Instagram photos. He didn't need to see your Facebook posts. He didn't need to see your business card because he knew what was in you. Now, for some of you, that might be troubling. Like I said, you might go, man, I, I don't want him to know what's in me. I want him to know what I tell him. But it's not meant to be scary. It's meant to be freeing. It's meant to break the chains of the facade. It's meant to break the chains of the pretense that bind us. So often we're wrapped up in this idea of maintaining an image and what we learn about Jesus here is that that's unnecessary. That he knows you and he sees you and he doesn't care what you say about yourself. He knows the truth and he loves you still. That there is no need for pretense. There is no need for the mask. That there is no need for the facade. Now the writer's going to go on and give us several examples. Nicodemus we're going to study this morning. When we come back in January, we'll be looking at the story of the woman at the well. That's another great example of someone who Jesus knew. Regardless of what she said about herself, he knew her. We'll see several examples of that in the coming months. Jesus didn't need man's testimony about himself because he knew it was in a man's heart. And then it gives us an example. Look at John chapter 3. In John chapter 3 verse 1 it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, right? Okay, so we got this character, Nicodemus, and we get a little bit of a resume here. It says he's a ruler of the Jews. That means he's part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. This guy's a leader in the Jewish nation. Not only that, it says that he's a Pharisee. Now, at the time that this is occurring, the Pharisee, the Pharisees were kind of a small group. They were just sort of emerging. But they were a group that prided themselves on legalism, on adherence to the law, on knowing the scriptures. In fact, later in this text, Jesus will look at Nicodemus and say, you're a teacher of the law? And what he's pointing at is the fact that the Pharisees said, hey, we're the ones who should be instructing Israel. So this guy's got pretty decent credentials. If he'd had a business card, it would have been pretty cool. 
Nicodemus is a guy who's well-respected. He's a guy who's got power. He's got influence. He's got intellect. He's got education. He's got knowledge. He's respected in his community. This is a guy that when he says stuff, people stand up and listen. That's who we're dealing with. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and it tells us that he comes to Jesus to speak with him at night. Now, much has been made. If you've heard this text taught before, people go, oh, he came at night. It's because he's, he's sneaky, right? He's, there's a little bit of subterfuge here. Nicodemus is sneaking to see Jesus. He doesn't bring any of the other Sanhedrin. He doesn't bring any of the other Pharisees with him. He's there on his own because he doesn't want them to know what he's doing. Well, it's possible, but it's just as likely what we understand in, in looking at sort of rabbinical writings is that the Jewish leaders at the time actually set aside space in the evenings to have theological conversation. So while it's possible that there is a little bit of subterfuge here, what's more likely is that this is a time that Nicodemus had dedicated and set aside to have a spiritual conversation about theological issues. It is worth noting that the writer, John, uses the, the idea of night or nighttime multiple places in the Bible, in, or in the book of John, and every time he uses the idea of night, he uses it both literally and uh, sort of metaphorically or morally, that when we see night come up in the book of John, it will always refer to the literal time of day when the sun has gone down, but it will almost always also point to sort of a night of the soul or a spiritual darkness. And we certainly see that's true with Nicodemus, that he comes at night and maybe he's being sneaky, but what we certainly know from reading the text is that he's coming in a place where there is spiritual blindness in the life of Nicodemus, that he's coming in the darkness of his own life, in the darkness of his own sort of intellectual understanding of religion. So it says here that he comes at night and he doesn't ask Jesus a question, he makes a statement, right? He makes a declaration. Now, it's, it's also worth remembering that Jesus' invitation to people who were interested in him was, come and see. Come on, bring it. Let's go. You want to see where I'm staying? Let's come and see, right? We know that the disciples, when they were inviting other disciples, would say, come and see this guy who comes from Nazareth, Nazareth and determine for yourself whether anything good comes from there. So certainly we see Nicodemus doing just that. He's not just listening to what he's heard. He's not just watching from afar. He's doing what Jesus has invited people to do. So if your tendency is to hear that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and immediately put him in a category of bad guy in the story, maybe hold off on that for a second. Because what we see in this text, in this recognition of what a Pharisee can be like, is not someone who's like the villain in the story, but rather someone who is interested. Now certainly he comes with a little bit of posturing. He comes with a little bit of self-confidence, but we don't see him as a bad guy in this text. We see him as a guy who's doing exactly what Jesus has invited him to do. Come and see. So Nicodemus comes at night, this ruler of the Jews, this member of the Pharisees. He comes, and you can almost hear it. He's by himself. He, he speaks, though, in the plural. And he says, Jesus, I got to tell you, we've seen some things, right? We see you. We've been watching. We've been paying attention. And we're hearing a lot of really good things, I got to tell you. Look at what he says. In John chapter 3, verse, th uh, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, it's, it's worth noting that he calls Jesus Rabbi because Jesus didn't have any of the training that Nicodemus had. So that's a little bit of an olive branch. It's a little bit of the tip of the cap that Nicodemus didn't need to do, but he does, he's expressing some warmth here. He says, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Can you kind of hear the tone? What, what's Nicodemus doing? He's trying to say something about himself. 
We have seen some things. We've observed some things. There are some things we know, and we're putting the pieces together, Jesus, and we watch you, and we see what you do, and we say to ourselves, you know what? This teacher must be from God, because no one could do the miraculous signs that you do unless they come from God, and that's just something we happen to know because we're tightly connected to the things of God, and we just want you to know that we know that you know some things, right? There's almost the implication in this, as Nicodemus declares it, that it's almost like him saying to Jesus, hey, we're considering, and I'm not going to go all in here, but we're considering giving you our endorsement. That's right, Jesus. If you're lucky and you can prove yourself to us, we might tell other people that we think you're the stuff, right? We might tell other people that we think you're from God, but we're still sort of weighing that out, right? He's puffed himself up. It's amazing to me the places when we get sort of inflated by what we know or what we perceive or what we think we know, right? And you sort of plant a stake in the ground and you go, hey, let me tell you a little bit about what I figured out or what I've achieved or the level of prestige that I've acquired or whatever. Nicodemus does that and Jesus kind of deflates him. I remember... um, my son Hank, when he was in third grade, he comes home from school one day with his buddy Jeremiah, he's got his little friend with him, and he, he tells my wife, he goes, Mom, uh, if you're looking for us, we're going to be out in the garage. And my mom's like, oh, what are you going to do in the garage? And he goes, oh, Jeremiah and me, we're going to build a time machine. And my, and my wife's like, oh, really? Like, you're, you know how to build a time machine? He goes, oh, yeah, it's easy. Building a time machine's easy. She goes, is it? I'm not, I'm not sure that that's true. And he goes, no, mom, building a time machine is really easy. She goes, how do you build one? She, he goes, well, you just go out in the garage and you build a time machine out of bits and bobbits, right? Now, here's the thing. My wife and I still, to this day, have no idea what he was talking about, right? I don't really know what a bit or a bobbit is. I don't know where he got that idea. But it was kind of funny to watch the confidence of a third grader who's so sure of himself that he's like, yeah, I don't know, we're going to go out in the garage and in a few hours we'll build a time machine without any real understanding that what he thinks he knows isn't true at all, right? Now, I say that like I know. It's possible my third grader built a time machine and he's been traveling for years and I just don't know it. I think the likelihood is that he didn't actually build a time machine out of bits and bobbits he found in my garage, right? The likelihood is that there was a sense of confidence in what he thought he knew when in fact he didn't know anything. And that's sort of what we see from Nicodemus here. Nicodemus comes and he says, we know that you are from God because we've seen the things you're doing, the miraculous signs you've performed, and we know that no one could do those things unless they were from God. And Jesus, Jesus goes, eh, right? Good try. I love the fact that in John chapter 6, Jesus says, and we'll get there in a a month or so, but in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I love this idea that Jesus says, when the hungry come to me, they'll be fed. And when the thirsty come to me, they'll receive something to drink. And when those who are seeking come to me, they will find. And I will never cast out those who draw near, right? Those who come to me will not be cast out. But the reality is that sometimes you and I, we come to God expecting a meal, and he serves us a meal, but it's not the meal we thought we were going to eat. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus satisfies the hunger of Nicodemus in this text in a way that he didn't even know himself. Jesus offers him something to drink that he didn't know he was thirsty for. But he does not send Nicodemus away. Nicodemus says, we know some things. We got some things figured out. Just want you to know, we got some things figured out. And Jesus says this. Look at what it says in John chapter three. Jesus looks at him and says, verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has just said, we see this and we see that. By the way, the word that's translated see there, both in Jesus' response and in Nicodemus' statement, when Nicodemus says, we have seen that you're from God or we know that you come from God, that word see and know, it's the same word in the original language. The word means to perceive or to understand. He says, we understand that you're from God. Now Jesus looks at him and says, you can't understand, you can't see, you can't perceive, you can't know the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Now I get the idea that the word born again or that phrase, it holds some evangelical connotation that can be a little bit distracting, right? When you hear Jesus say you have to be born again, you might have immediately like this mental image of like the old southern pastor who's like, ladies and gentlemen, you're never going to see the kingdom of God unless you get born again. You know, and you're like, whoa, all right. But hey, let me tell you, let me tell you, that language, the language of being born again is not something we invented. That's Jesus' sermon right there. That's Jesus' language. He looks at Nicodemus and says, you think you see so much, you think you know so much, but the truth, my friend, is that you cannot see, you cannot know the kingdom of God unless you've been reborn. And the word born again, the word again there means both again and it means from above. Jesus is saying you have to be born again and from above. It's sort of, the, the, the context there is almost like when you're a, when you're practicing with a band and you're working on some music and the band leader looks at the group and he says, okay, we're gonna start again and we're gonna take it from the top. Take it from the top. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. Your life cannot enter or see the kingdom of God unless you've started again from the beginning, unless you've been reborn. And now that, that flies in the face, both of what Nicodemus believed about himself that would be a very troubling thing to hear. If, you, if you've got all this power and this prestige, you've worked yourself into the Sanhedrin, you've studied hard, you've dedicated yourself, you're a well-respected member of the Jewish community, and now Jesus says, no, none of this works. You can't even see the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is very troubling. He's saying, hey, we've we got to start afresh. There's something new that has to happen in you because you're not capable of seeing the kingdom of God as you are. Nicodemus is being identified as one who's like a blind guide. We know in Matthew 23, when Jesus sort of famously rebukes the, the Pharisees, he'll rebuke them. One of the things he rebukes them for, he calls them blind guides. He says, you're trying to lead people to places you can't even see. In Matthew chapter 13, when, he's asked, when Jesus is asked why he speaks in parables, he talks about the idea out of Isaiah chapter six that the people of that age, the people of this age, they, they see but they don't see and they hear but they don't hear. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says in verse 14, indeed in their case the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Nicodemus is in a position where what he thinks he sees he doesn't see at all and what he thinks he knows is actually quite meaningless. Jesus says unless you're born again and from above you cannot see the kingdom of God. This is an important note for us what Jesus is saying this idea of rebirth, because for many of us in the room today, this whole notion of Christianity, this whole notion of religion is ultimately, I mean, when you boil it all down, for many of us sitting in the room today, it's about life modification, right? It's about improving your life somehow. Your, your life was a certain way, maybe it was okay, and you're hoping for it to get a lot better, and so you're coming to church. Or maybe your life was a mess, and you're hoping for it to get okay, right? And so you've come to church, 
But for many of us, when we study the scriptures or we think about who Jesus is, we think, I want him to take my life from good to great. I want him to improve my life. I want him to modify my life. I want, I want things to be better than they are. And I think maybe Christianity or maybe Jesus or religion or whatever will do that. It'll just make my life a little bit better than it would be without church. Can I tell you, that's not what this faith is about, nor is it what Jesus preached. He did not ever preach life modification. He never preached life improvement. He always preached life, right? He says in John 10, the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that they may have life. The implication of which is that apart from Christ, there is no life. So Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, yeah, I hear you telling me what you know, what you know about God, what you know about me, what you know about miracles, but let me tell you what, buddy, you can't see the things of God because you haven't been born again, new life and from above. Jesus didn't come to modify our lives. Alistair Begg says what Nicodemus is looking for is information when what he actually needs is regeneration. John Calvin uh, sort of famously said, here in this text we see that he needs not just an amendment of a part of his life, but the renewal of the whole. He doesn't, we don't just need Jesus to tweak a part of us, just to fix that one little area of weakness or sin. We have to be made new. Jesus says you have to be born again. And Nicodemus sort of understandably sputters back with a response. Look at verse four. Nicodemus said to him, <laughs> How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You can sort of hear it in Nicodemus' voice there. Like, what are you talking about? I can't, I can't go back into my mother's womb. Now, now it's possible here that Nicodemus is truly misunderstanding. That's a major theme in the book of John. We'll see again and again and again, misunderstanding. It's possible that Nicodemus misunderstands what Jesus is saying and is taking him very literally and is thinking Jesus is saying I gotta go back and be born again out of my mom's womb. I think it's more likely that Nicodemus understands all too well what Jesus is saying and finds that an impossibility. I think Nicodemus knows all too well what Jesus is saying and for a guy who's worked hard to achieve a certain status to achieve a certain reputation for a guy who's cracked open the books and has learned a lot that people come to and ask questions about spiritual things, for a guy like that to start over again, there's not enough time. There's not enough time in life to begin again. I've worked hard to get to this place. How can an old man start over? No, 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 I'm far too well established. And I'll tell you, there may be some of you in the room again this morning who are in that very same space. That you've opened up God's word or you've listened to the spirit of God or you've come to services like this and you've heard the spirit of God speak to you and you've said, no, I can't do the thing he's asking me to do because I have a reputation already. Because I have a career that's established. Because I have plans for what I'm supposed to do with my bank account and plans for where my family's going and plans for all the ladders I'm trying to climb and I cannot start anew because I'm in an established place. If you've ever answered the question that way, then you're in the very same space Nicodemus is in. You find yourself coughing and sputtering at the prompting of the Spirit of God when he says, live differently, and you go, how am I supposed to do this? I'm an old guy, right? I kind of got a way of doing things, and I don't want to disrupt that. He says, how can I be born again? Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? Jesus answers that question with three different sort of specific clarifications, and we're going to look at all of them, but let's read them together. In verse 5, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. 
so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says something that has sort of had theologians confounded for a long time in this first verse, in verse five. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And people have sort of speculated because water gets used all throughout the gospels to mean different things. People have said, well, you know, what's he talking, is he talking about baptism? Is he, what's this water he's talking about, water and spirit? Well, the key to unlocking what Jesus is saying here is to listen to the way that Jesus rebukes Nicodemus further on. So if you look down with me to verse 10, Jesus says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? The implication in Jesus' heart and mind as he looks at Nicodemus is, as a guy who studied the scriptures, as a guy who knows the Torah, these things shouldn't be that surprising to you. They shouldn't be that startling. So in understanding what Jesus is saying, the key for us to unlocking it is to look back at what the Old Testament has said about water and spirit. It's also important to note that these aren't two separate things. So when he says, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born of water and of spirit, those aren't two separate births, right? It's not, it's not water and then also a spirit birth. The way we know that, if you look at the verse in verse, um, in verse five, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, you see that word of right there? That's a modifier that only happens once. It's not repeated. That word of is meant to modify both water and spirit as one occurrence. That's one thing that happens. So birth in water and spirit, it's not two separate things, it's one thing. A water and spirit birth is what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. Now in order to understand that, turn back with me, if you will, to Ezekiel, or you can look on the screens, we'll put it there, Ezekiel chapter 36, in a prophecy about kingdom life and and the covenant that God would make with his people in the new kingdom, Ezekiel, and this is just one of several passages that say this, but in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, listen to this, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What's Jesus saying then? He looks at Nicodemus and says, it isn't about what you know or where you've been or where you've studied. It's a supernatural thing that happens to you, which I declared long ago, that I would wash you by the spirit, that there would be a cleansing and both a regeneration, a washing with clean water and a regeneration by the spirit of God. That's the same thing. It's the thing that was prophesied. A new birth that happens through the washing and through the Spirit. Jesus says, unless that happens, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, in further clarity, back to John chapter 3. Well, and actually, let me just show you also in Titus the way this is backed up as well in later writings. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4, listen to this. Speaking about water and Spirit. In Titus 3, 4, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see that there is a cleansing and a regeneration that is a part of the saving work of God that gives us new life, new birth. Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you've been born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He goes on to say this, look at verse six. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What's he saying there? 
He's looking at Nicodemus and he's saying, like begets like. Like begets like. Nicodemus, your whole life is based on this earthly system. It's based on the reputation and the perceptions of others. But flesh can only produce flesh, right? So all of your working and all of your striving, all of your instruction, all of your teaching, all of your religion, all that has the power to do is create more religious people. All it has the, re- the, the ability to do is to create more people who are puffed up with their own power and their own reputation and their own prestige. That can't make you a new person because flesh begets flesh and it requires spirit to produce spirit. Note here as well, he doesn't say spirit produces spiritual. It's not that the spirit, again, modifies us or makes us spiritual in a way we wouldn't be otherwise, but the spirit makes us something wholly other that the natural man can't do on his own. Flesh begets flesh. Human beings can only produce human beings. If we're gonna be supernatural, we have to have a supernatural source. Does that make sense? We have to have a supernatural parent. This new life in Christ happens because of the work of the Spirit, not, not our human efforts. That's why you know, it's worth looking at the text and reminding yourself, you never wanna put your faith in me because I'm just a guy who's just broken like you. You never want to put your faith in a pastor. You never want to put your faith in a priest. You never want to put your faith in a self-help guru or the writer of a self-help book. You never want to put your faith in another human being. Why? Because flesh begets flesh. All those people will ever be able to do in your life, these other broken human beings, is sort of speculate alongside you about their best guess as to how to live your life. We don't need more assistance from other human beings. We need supernatural, spiritual resurrection that's only brought about by the Spirit of God. Flesh begets flesh, but spirit begets spirit. And then it's really funny. Look at what happens here. It says in in verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I imagine at this point that Nicodemus, I don't know if his mouth's hanging open, right? Like, I thought we were just going to have a conversation about, you know, an endorsement or what. I don't know. It's going to, gosh, what's happening to me right now? He's feeding me a meal I didn't ask for. Jesus says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't be surprised by that. He gives one last picture. Look, here it is in eight. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He looks at Nicodemus and he says, Nicodemus, it's like the wind, right? Which interestingly, the word for spirit is the same word in the original language. It's pneuma. It's the same word for wind and spirit. But he says, it's like the wind. He's like, you see the wind? You know the wind exists. You can feel the effects of the wind, right? The wind is evidential among us, but you don't control the wind. You don't understand the wind. You can't get your mind around it. You can't put the wind in a tiny little box and contain it. It's bigger than you. It's beyond you. The same thing is true for those who are born of the Spirit. I can see, Nicodemus, I can see your little peanut brain there with your jaw hanging open going, I don't know what to do. Let me tell you, it's not something that you can grasp or fully comprehend. It's not something, Nicodemus, that you can do or that your religion can do or that your intellect can do. It's not about knowing theological understanding. It's about being transformed by something supernatural that you can't know fully and can't comprehend, certainly can't control. He says it's like the wind. There's evidence of it. The same thing is true for those who are born of the Spirit. It's evidential in our lives, but we don't control it. We don't dictate it. We certainly don't put it, put it in a neat little box that we totally grasp and understand. It's funny, even in Southern California with all of our science and all of our technology, they give you a 10-day forecast, and if you're like me, you don't believe it until you're standing in the rain, right? 
because they change it moment by moment. We understand kind of how wind works. We certainly have learned scientifically how to harness the wind, how to turn it into energy. There's all kinds of things we can do with the wind, but we don't control it. We don't put it in a tight little box. Jesus says, Nicodemus, don't marvel that I said you have to be born again. I can tell that your mind is spinning because you're trying to, you're trying to comprehend it, and I'm telling you that it's something beyond you. It's something supernatural. It's something mystical that you have to be born again. Flesh can only produce flesh, but the spirit can produce spirit. You have to be born of water and the spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. And here we see in verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I would guess that that's not a sentence Nicodemus has ever said before. Right, just knowing the kind of guy he is, a guy who's learned a lot, who has a reputation to maintain. You don't say in, in very many public spaces, I don't get it. I don't understand, how can this be? I love the fact that Nicodemus in this moment says, how can this be? Because what that demonstrates is a spiritual and intellectual and emotional bankruptcy that's absolutely true, but which his facade had been covering up to this point. I wonder how many of us here in this place are reluctant to ever go, how can this be? Why? Because we want to be able to prove that we know things. We want to be able to prove how smart we are. We want to be able to prove how much we've learned. We want to be able to prove how great our vacation was. We want to be able to prove how great our breakfast was. So we post up all the facades and all the images to make it seem like we got everything under control. Nicodemus is articulately and beautifully brought to a place by Jesus of utter and complete bankruptcy where the teacher of Israel now goes, I got nothing. I don't get it. How can this be? And it makes me smile because that's exactly the posture we want to have too. We want to have this posture before God that says, how can this be? You know, did you ever see that show, uh, What Not to Wear, when that was on, on TLC back in the day? Um, That's basically a show where like people would ride into the show and they'd go, oh, I have a friend or a coworker or whatever who's like a fashion disaster and can you send your crew to like give them a makeover? So these fashionistas or whatever, they'd show up like at the person's work or they'd show up at their house and they'd be like, surprise, we're gonna give you a makeover. And the person was always like, do I need a makeover, you know? Um, And the whole time that show was on the air, I was always panicked, right? I was always so scared that somebody was going to submit my name to what not to wear. And I couldn't think of anything worse than having those people show up where I work and be like, bro, we got to fix this. This is a train wreck of fashion. You know, like, we're going to put a belt on you or whatever, make you look thinner, you know. I was so nervous that somebody would submit my name. It's also kind of unnerving that, like, people think you need a makeover, but instead of telling you, they tell TV. You know, that's, that's mean. <laughs> And then the real panic was I was always afraid that they would show up and they would see me and then they'd be like, yeah, no, we can't do anything for this guy, right? Like, this is, let's just go on to the next episode. Like, we got nothing. Like, this whole thing just needs to start new. In essence, Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, none of what you've put together is, is advancing you spiritually. It doesn't enter you into the kingdom of God. It doesn't open your eyes to spiritual things. Yeah, you've put all this together, but none of it works. You have to be born again and from above. So Nicodemus looks at Jesus and says, how can this be? And here's Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. I like the fact that he speaks in the plural there because remember when Nicodemus came? He said, we've seen you and we know that you must be from God because you do these. Now Jesus goes, we've seen some things. You've seen some things? We've seen some things, right? We're testifying to what we've seen. 
I'm speaking to you about what I know. Why? Because I'm the author of life. Because I'm the creator of all things. You want to talk about somebody who's seen some things? I've seen some things. And I am speaking to you now, Nicodemus, as a person who has firsthand witnessed what I'm speaking to you about. I'm the one who wrote the law you've studied. He says, I've testified to what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, this idea of being born again is the first step. It's the very beginning of any and every other conversation we could have. And there is no point in us talking about the kingdom of God or us talking about heaven or us talking about eternity or us talking about the Messiah, talking about any of the other things you might be interested in. There is no reason for us to talk about any of the other spiritual things until we've got this thing in order because until you've been born again, none of that stuff can you even see or understand. It's amazing how often in our lives we get caught up and wrapped up in all kinds of, you know, theological arguments and all kinds of dissensions and all kinds of queries. We want to know, you know, well, is Jesus going to come back before the rapture? Is he going to come after the rapture? I'm in the middle of, you know, like, what's going to happen? Like, how's this all work? And Jesus would look at us and say, there's not really even any point in speculating or spending any time, you know, splicing any of the rest of that until you've been made new through the water and the Spirit. Until Jesus has done something new in you, until you've been born again, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you and I need to receive this morning, and it's this. Kingdom life is not about external religion fueled by internal knowledge or pride. Kingdom life is not about external religion fueled by internal knowledge or pride. Kingdom life is about internal rebirth fueled by external power. Kingdom life is about internal rebirth fueled by external power. It's not about you pulling yourselves up by the bootstraps. It's not about you learning another theological tidbit. Kingdom life is not about a mastery of theological ideas. Kingdom life is about being made new by Jesus, by his spirit. And in order to be born again, you know where you have to come? You have to come to a place in your life where you can say, how can this be? I can't do it. I'm never going to know enough. I'm never going to have enough power. I am spiritually and emotionally and intellectually bankrupt. And I need the Spirit of God to make me new. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I want to invite you right where you sit to call out to Jesus. I would imagine that there are some of you who've sort of hedged your bets on external religion fueled by internal knowledge. And Jesus would look at you with love and grace and say, no, no, it's not about what you know or or who you know. It's about me and my power. It's about the Spirit of God making you new, born again and from above. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, if you've never trusted in him, I invite you right in the quietness of this moment to cry out to him and to say, Jesus, will will you make me born again? Will you save me from sin and death? I realize that it's not about what I know or what I can prove. It's not about what I've seen or what I've experienced. It's not about my reputation and my power. It is about you and your work on my behalf. I invite you to call out to him right where you sit in the quietness of your own heart and say, Jesus, will you make me new? And God, I pray 
that you would draw us to yourself, that if there are men and women in this place who've never put their faith in you, who've never been born again, that you would raise them to new life as they put their faith in you, right in this place. We know that the wind is something we see, it's something we feel, it's something we know, but it isn't something we can control or contain. God, in the same way, I pray that you would create new life in these And that there would be clear evidence of your spirit's power and your spirit's work. The fruit of the spirit would be made manifest in them. God, that they would know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.